On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Alex DePrima about Charles Spurgeon and social activism. We cover topics like who is Spurgeon, what was his social activism, and what was his theological understanding of justice, social justice, and social activism, of course. If you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email us at contact at the LondonLyceum.com. We love to hear from our listeners, whoever you may be. Now, for the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today, I'm really looking forward to introducing you to our new friend, Alex DePrima. Uh, And now that I realize I'm saying his name, I didn't even ask how to pronounce his last name, so he'll probably correct me. You got it right, man. (laughs) So... But what I, I, I'm very, very excited to talk about this topic for two reasons. So we're talking about Charles Spurgeon and his views on justice, social activism, social justice, whatever the terminology is supposed to be used that he would use. And I think it's interesting for two reasons. Number one, I mean, Spurgeon's on our logo of the podcast. So I know you guys download it. You see Spurgeon every time. So we've never actually talked about Spurgeon before. So this is a great opportunity to actually get a little bit of background on him, uh, why he matters to the Baptist faith, those types of things. But then the other thing is, I mean, social justice is an extremely hot topic. I don't think any of us have any interest in creating like super dogmatic, like every church member must do this on this podcast. I think people who listen to this know we have all sorts of different views, and that's part of why we call it the Lyceum. So we can have debate, genuine, friendly, kind interaction with people who think differently and understand why people think the way they do. But when it comes to this topic, it's so, I don't know what the word is. It's kind of like just full of, I don't know, someone help me here, tension or just polarizing. Polarizing, that's good. And I think the church really could be helped by retrieving uh, people from the past and what they thought about this topic. Uh, to help us inform our understanding of how we should think about it today, uh, rather than being only informed by our current circumstances. So I'm excited to talk about this. Alex, I'll let you introduce yourself uh, for a few seconds, think 30 to 60 seconds, because I'm imagining some of our listeners aren't familiar with who you are mm-hmm. uh, and why you're interested in Spurgeon and why you're interested in this topic, those types of things. So just give us a little bit of background before we get get into the topic. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Alex DePrima. I'm a pastor in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, a church called Emanuel Church. We're right near Wake Forest University uh, there in the northwest area of Winston-Salem. Uh, married, have two kids and one on the way. And um, actually just finished writing my dissertation at Southeastern Seminary under the supervision of Dr. Nathan Finn, who I think you've had on as a guest on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it hasn't the dissertation has been defended yet? So if if I if I fail the defense, you guys might want to pull this episode. I don't know. <laughs> um, no, but um, I, I grew up in in churches, Reformed Baptist churches that held to the Second London Confession of 1689. Spurgeon was kind of like, um, you know, the old kind of records or cassettes your parents played when you were growing up. It's kind of in the background, and then maybe one day when you're a little older, you're like, hey, this music is actually kind of pretty cool. I'm going to play some of these myself. Spurgeon was like background music in my upbringing and um, eventually got a set of his commentaries for Christmas one year while I was in college, or not his commentaries, his sermons, excuse me, and um, have have since then had a tremendous interest in Spurgeon and so have written on his uh, evangelical activism and um, very interested in his ministry and its relevance for today. That's Very cool. Yeah. So why don't you kick us off with just a... Some some biographical information on Spurgeon. Uh, a lot of our listeners are going to know quite a bit about Spurgeon, but some sure. are not going to know anything. So um, where is he from? Who is he? Why does he matter? Um, just talk to us a little bit about the man. Yeah, sure. So Spurgeon was a Baptist preacher in the 19th century uh, in the Victorian era. Not not just a Baptist preacher, but a um, I mean, he, he would be considered by many to be the greatest preacher of that era in, in Britain. Some would consider the greatest preacher ever. And um, his dates are 1834 to 1892, uh, so span much of the reign or most of the reign of Queen Victoria. Uh, I always tell people, so he lived to be 57. His father and grandfather both lived into their late 80s, early 90s. And so it's just interesting to think what a Spurgeon lived another 35 Mm -hmm. years or something like that. That would have put him into the mid-1920s. 
So you're thinking he would have lived through World War One. A young Martin Lloyd Jones might have gone to his church. I mean, it's just kind of interesting wow, to speculate, yeah. you know, what his life might have been like. But he dies young, fifty-seven uh, in, in year eighteen ninety-two. Uh, grew up in East Anglia in Puritan country. The Puritans are a big influence in his upbringing. Uh, he discovers Puritan works in his grandfather's library by figures like Richard Baxter and John Owen and Joseph Elaine, and falls in love with the Puritans. Uh, when he's fifteen, uh, he's uh, converted quite quite radically, uh, kind of a famous story of him walking through a snowstorm and turning off into a primitive Methodist chapel. And he's converted in a very sort of confrontational sermon from a lowly, you know, uh, lay preacher that, that preaches that morning. And and pretty much from that point on, he's, he's 15 when that takes place, that conversion takes place. And from that point on, he throws himself into Christian work, um, track distribution, teaching Sunday school. He ends up in, in Cambridge at an academy out there and uh, he he joins the Lay Preachers Association at St. Andrew Street Baptist Church. If you know Baptist history, that's where Robert Hall was the minister. And uh, the the ethos of Charles Simeon uh, is is still alive and well, has a big influence on him. Simeon would have been off the scene at that point, but his legacy is still prominent. And Spurgeon begins preaching at the age of 16, doing lay preaching, preaching in uh, fields and barns and cottages. By the time he's 17, he becomes the pastor of uh, a church in a small village in Cambridgeshire called Waterbeach. That church grows from something like 100 to over 400 people in just 18 months while Spurgeon is there. He gains this reputation as sort of this boy wonder. Uh, and then he's called to pastor a very uh, famous church in London uh, in, I suppose it's 1853, 54, when that call comes. Uh, the church then was called New Park Street Chapel. It's the church where a number of famous Baptists had been uh, minister for for many years. So Benjamin Keach was the pastor there, uh, was one of the signatories of the 1689 Confession. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Gill was also pastor there for, I don't know, 50 or 60 years. And then John Rippon, lesser known, but a very famous Baptist as well, wrote a lot of hymns. And uh, Spurgeon comes shortly after, after Rippon's time had ended there. The church is maybe 230 members at that point. Over the course of his ministry over the next 30-some years, from 1854 to 1892, uh, the church grows to over 5,000 people, the largest church in Christendom, 5,000 members, I should say. And um, he preaches regularly to audiences morning and evening of over 6,000 people. He often preaches midweek, so he preaches on average about six to eight times per week. Thousands of people everywhere he goes. Early on, he's criticized in the press as kind of this boy wonder and He's going he's gonna to be a flash in the pan kind of guy. But uh, what is most striking, I think, about Spurgeon's ministry in London is, is not only his ability to draw so many thousands of people uh, to his preaching, uh, but his ability to keep them for, for mm-hmm. generations and to grow those crowds and for many of them to become members and to be under his care for, for so many years. So uh, just a remarkable ministry. Over the course of his ministry, I think it's something like f- over 14,000 members are added to what then became known as the Metropolitan Tabernacle. There was a change of name and a change of venue. Um, I think it's about 5,300 by the time he he dies in 1892. Um, starts tons of ministry, starts a couple of orphanages, a pastor's training college, uh, plants over 200 churches in Britain alone, sends missionaries all across the world. Just a profoundly fruitful ministry, writes lots of books as well, more words in English than anyone else up to that point uh, in Christian mm-hmm. literature. So just a remarkably fruitful, fruitful uh, preacher and still tremendously relevant and appreciated today. I think one of the things that's so interesting about Spurgeon is that he's appreciated by so many in so many different groups. Mm-hmm. So, so he's a Calvinist and big on Calvinism, but he's appreciated by Arminians. Uh, you know, I think he's, he's one of these guys that transcends any particular kind of niche group or denomination. And so, and there's also some themes, I think, in his life that make him, you know, especially relevant. He, he's a man who was very familiar with suffering and uh, persevered through suffering. I think people find him accessible in how he's open about his own suffering. Also, he struggled uh, mightily with depression. And uncharacteristically for a Victorian, talks about that even from the pulpit. And uh, there's a wonderful little book. What's the name of, uh, I think it's Zach Eswin or Eswine. I don't know how to pronounce the brother's name. He wrote a little oh, yeah. book called Spurgeon's Sorrows. Uh, that 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 sort of profiles some of his struggles with depression and uh, mental struggles and um, remarkably helpful book to lots of pastors I know and 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 even lay people and so uh, I just think he's a very earthy guy and very accessible and very uh, I don't know a lot of people have have 
he sustained, I think, an audience for a long, long time and has never been more popular probably than he is today. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got to agree. I mean, just his accessibility is the, you know, it seems to me that there are there are very few people uh, in history that write in such a way that pretty much everybody can enjoy reading them. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think of him and maybe like Calvin and Augustine as some examples of people. I just I really enjoy reading it. And yeah. people who start reading them think, OK, this is archaic guy who's you know lived hundreds of years in the past or whatever it may be. I'm not going to enjoy reading him. Mm-hmm. But when Spurgeon, I mean, I don't know anyone who has the sense of humor. Yeah, oh, yeah. He has. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think that's another thing people feel feel drawn to him because he's very human. You know, and I I think I think there's something to be learned there. I mean, this is a guy who mastered the English language. He could quote off the top of his head long passages of Shakespeare, had read everything Shakespeare ever wrote, owned all of Dickens's novels. He had mastered many of the classics, had read Bunyan, he says, uh, Pilgrim's Progress a hundred times or so. Mm -hmm. And a guy who knew how to um, use the English language. I think it was JFK who said of Winston Churchill that he... Uh, what was the line that he um, marshaled the English language and sent it off to war, and um, <laughs> something like that can be said of Spurgeon. He 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 had command of the English language. He knew how to use it, and I think today he still reads very well. People find his sermons so easy to read and so helpful, mm-hmm. and so yeah. there's punch to them. Um, so he's managed to stay very relevant in that regard. Yeah, I made my. I guess I don't know what. The, it's not annual for a Baptist to have to go make their pilgrimage there. What is it? Is it like once in your lifetime you have to make your pilgrimage to the Metropolitan Tabernacle? If if we do that as Baptists, that's one of the one of the sacred spots for sure. <laughs> I made it there last year, and it was a, it was a great time. It was really cool to be able to visit. Well, but, I just say if if you go to to England today. Uh, there's many sites um, you can visit connected to his life that are well-preserved, well-maintained. The Brits haven't done a great job of keeping his legacy alive, but Americans send so many people over there to kind of follow the path of Spurgeon, you know? And so there's lots of cool things you can still see today, which is really yeah. neat. Yeah. So when it comes to Spurgeon and his thoughts on justice, social justice, activism, what are his thoughts? Maybe you can just kind of give an explanation ground level of just historically speaking first. Yes. What does his, what does Spurgeon say? What does he do? What does that look like in his own context? Sure. Yeah. Good question. And, and so, so what I have written on is largely Spurgeon's social activism, though it did get into issues of social justice, but th- that wasn't the main burden of the dissertation. But so I'll talk about his social activism first, and then we can have some fun and speculate on where he'd be with social justice. But <laughs> he, he um, Spurgeon, Spurgeon is properly understood, I think, to be an evangelical activist. Uh, you have an explosion of evangelical activism in in the evangelical movement. Uh, the the proliferation of organizations and 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 institutions designed for all kinds of things: the relief of the poor, the publication of literature. Uh, ministering to the needy, uh, sending out missionaries, uh, planting churches. I mean, he's he's an evangelical activist first and foremost. And um, in keeping with Victorians of his day, um, an age that's known for philanthropy and, and 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 mercy ministry and benevolence, he is an incredible philanthropist. If you go to England today, there would be a number of sites you visit. So so the Brits will sometimes put these sort of commemorative blue plaques on things. You know, this was. Charles Dickens' favorite pub or something like that, you know, and they have it for all these various figures. And they have some of those for Spurgeon. So if you go to the home that he was born in in Kelvin, it'll have a blue plaque on there and the place where he was converted and Spurgeon preached here and all that kind of stuff. And most of them will say, you know, famous preacher Charles Spurgeon, you know, was converted here, whatever. But a, a few of them at least say um, famous preacher and philanthropist. And what a lot of people I think don't know about Spurgeon is that he, he was a philanthropist and he was so given to uh, social ministries and ministries to bless the poor and the needy and the disenfranchised. And so by 1884, so some 30 years after he had been in London, um, there were 66 benevolent institutions operating out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, wow. um, all of which, by the way, he either founded or funded or chaired. I mean, you go to the minute books for a lot of these 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 ministries, and and he's he's at all the meetings, and he's <laughs> he's speaking into the policies, and he's helping them write policies. It's just crazy. 
And um, and it's for all kinds of things. I mentioned the orphanages, um, ministry to policemen, ministry to prostitutes, clothing bank, food drive, um, you know, center for literature distribution, a poor pastors fund. I mean, all these different agencies and ministries that he he helped to to resource and and promote. And so he's a he's given to trying to improve the condition of people around him and help people and minister to people and to show forth the character of God through good works. And that's very much a part of his ministry. As far as political activism goes, that's a really interesting topic. You know, few evangelical preachers would have had more influence than Spurgeon. Probably no evangelical preachers in Britain would have had more influence than Spurgeon because he commanded both the pulpit and the pen and influenced thousands of people. And um, he's he's pretty restrained, though, in his political activism. He he tries to avoid political rhetoric in his sermons. He urges his students to avoid political partisanship in, in preaching and things like that. Um, but at the same time, he's not unwilling to address subjects, that uh, current events, political topics that merge with religious concerns. And so a few of those issues would be, for example, like the disestablishment of the state church. I mean, he is just all about getting rid of the Anglican establishment. Um, and Spurgeon grew up in anyways as kind of a second-class citizen. When he was in Cambridge, he wouldn't have been allowed to enroll at Cambridge. Dissenters weren't allowed to enroll in Oxford or Cambridge. That changes in the 1870s. Weren't allowed to have their own burial rites at funerals and things like that. Had to pay taxes to support Anglican churches. He wants to abolish that, that system. And um, he, of course, very famously addresses slavery makes this incredible stand. Um, he, he, he is supporting his pastor's college, his training college for pastors in the 1850s, entirely on his own. About 600, 800 pounds a year he's giving to support this training college. And he's doing it largely from the sales of his sermons in America. Well, then he finds out that his American publishers are, are redacting any references to slavery from his sermons. Now, granted, they're very few. It's not like he's preaching about slavery all the time. We shouldn't imagine that, but there are a few references and the publishers are pulling them out. Spurgeon becomes aware of this. And I just think this is remarkable. He could have been kind of quiet about it and said, that's in America. That's not my problem. And kind of kept cashing those checks, you know, from his sermon sales that by the way, he's using to support this ministry that's so near and dear to his heart. And instead he makes a fuss about it. He says, no way, you know, and and that's where he makes some of his most well-known statements that he would, he wouldn't sit at the Lord's table with the slave owner. Hmm. He just hates man stealing from his, his uh, deepest depths of his soul. And what they do is his publishers pull his sermons. They stop publishing them in the American South. They hold community book burnings in many Southern towns. You'll see at newspaper articles. You can look them up today where, where you have ministers saying, Hey, let's all get together and burn our Spurgeon sermons. Cause he's not wow. our guy anymore, basically. And uh, just a remarkable so stand. Culture was very real then. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they had their sacred cows back then. And man, if you spoke against them, you know, um, so, so he'll speak to issues like that. War is another one he speaks to. He was not a fan of, of, of much of British imperialism. Some people say he's a pacifist. That's not correct. Um, but he's extremely negative about war and almost will never justify a, a, a war. But um, so, so that's kind of his political activism. But I would say in terms of his preaching and teaching, he would say Christian people are to be benevolent toward outsiders. They're to be compassionate toward their fellow men. They should care about bodies as well as souls. Mm-hmm. He has a great, great punchy quote. I'll see if I can remember it. He says, uh, a Christian, uh, to me, a Christian is a friend of man. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a Christian is a philanthropist by profession and generous by force of grace. Wide as the reign of sorrow is the stretch of his love and where he cannot help, he pities still. He views mm-hmm. this as part of the warp and woof of, 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 of Christian character, the new birth. And those who experience the grace of God and the forgiveness of their sins, they turn into gracious people and loving people and compassionate people. And so he's very much about good works that do good to, to our fellow men and show forth the character of God. And um, he's big on benevolence. He thinks that should form part of the mission of the church. Um, and so, so that's kind of, kind of where he is there. As far as social justice, um, that's a very interesting topic. I mean, there, there are a couple of reasons I'd say why it would be impossible to evaluate Spurgeon on social justice comprehensively. Um, the, the, the first I would say is that Spurgeon would really have no idea what you meant if you started talking about social justice, that mm-hmm. category, that phrase we use, yeah, it really is, 
it comes into its own in the 20th century, early to mid 20th century. So if, there's no reference to social justice as, as so a term. How different terms. is his activism versus what we think of as social justice in our contemporary context? Maybe that can yeah. help a little bit. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so I mean, I don't know that I, I know precisely what people mean when they use the term social justice. It's a Fair. drunk drawer term. And so it would depend on how we define that term. I mean, there is a, a historical <laughs> meaning to that term and it has to do with distributive justice and things like that. But I guess I, I would say this, I'll, I'll make this distinction and you can decide, the listeners can decide if this applies to social justice today. Spurgeon and his activism is profoundly individualistic. Hmm. So he is not primarily concerned with pursuing political means of large-scale systemic change. So he's not going to say, well, well, Jordan and Brandon, what you need to do as faithful Christians is you need to be out there campaigning for a change of the laws. He thinks, and, and some will view this as naive, but, but, but he thinks what needs to happen is people need to get converted. They need mm-hmm. to come to believe the gospel. They need to be transformed by the new birth. And that's the only hope of society, that more people will embrace the Christian way, the Christian life, the Christian gospel, and they will be transformed into lovers of their neighbor and people who are zealous for good works. So very much, and maybe this betrays some of my bias, I guess, but that, that idea in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus holds forth, that we're to be a city on a hill, we're to be a, a light that's not hidden under a bushel, that, that people are to see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. That's where Spurgeon wants to talk about the place of good deeds and the life of the Christian, the mission of the church. These mm-hmm. things give credence to our witness. They commend the power of the gospel. They commend Christian witness, and they show forth the character of a good and, and benevolent God. But it's it's an individual approach. We need to change people individually, one by one. And that is how, unless there's revival, there is not large-scale hope of of changing the culture or society. So I want to ask you what and we're we're getting into this already, but you know what what Spurgeon would think about today's debates over social justice. And I know um, it, it's kind of hard to take one figure from you know the Victorian era and you know somehow just pick him up and then drop him in 2020. Um, and one of the things, just maybe for for a, a transition here, when we had Carl Truman on, you know, he made a comment that really stuck out to me. That, um, you know, today everything is political. Nothing is seen mm. as pre-political. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's probably going to be the, the big difficulty in moving Spurgeon to 2020 is that right. th- you mentioned that he really wasn't political and he didn't see these things as primarily political issues, but as individual issues. But is there anything in his writings, in his sermons, in, you know, what he did as an individual that we can glean and, and maybe say, well, this is how I think he would respond to what's going on today. Yeah, I, I think so. But but um, think is the operative word. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm not eager to introduce poor Spurgeon into debates and controversies that he didn't anticipate or live through. Yeah, you know, he had enough controversy sure. in his own life. But so so if people understand that, I'm just speculating here based on on my reading of Spurgeon. Um, I think he would evaluate, let's just say, let's just say contemporary debate surrounding social justice. Let's, let's limit it. Contemporary debate surrounding social justice in evangelical circles in America. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I think, because I think that's the audience, let's say he were ministering in America. He'd be interested in how Christians are talking about this more than yeah. anything else. Yeah. I think in general, he would view our debates surrounding this topic as um, somewhat shallow. And, and a little bit disappointing. I, I think that that he would think we're not having the conversation on the plane that, that we're at the level that we need to be having it at. I, I think that he would think we're probably too influenced by the culture. We're too influenced by politics, less less um, biblically oriented in our, our thinking. Um, I, I think if Spurgeon were alive today, he would be very cautious against missional drift. So he doesn't, the, the term social gospel is not used in his writings, but it's definitely confronted by a lot of his students after Spurgeon dies. Guys like Archibald Brown and, and others, they go after the social gospel and they believe themselves to be in keeping with Spurgeon's legacy. That, that, that idea emerges late 1890s, really in the early 20th century. 
And um, he would he he shows this in the downgrade controversy, that big controversy toward the end of his life. He is concerned about fundamental tenets of the Christian faith, like the atonement, like the eternality of hell and things like that. But what has not been written about enough is he's also concerned about socialism. He's concerned about progressivism. He's concerned about worldliness among pastors. That was a big part of his concerns as well. It wasn't just doctrinal issues. And so I think he would be concerned about anything that would take us away from gospel preaching and soul winning. That's that's the capital thing for, for Spurgeon. Um, so anything that he perceived to be a social gospel, he, he would be outspoken against. And um, I, I think he would be outspoken. He would warn against, I should say, um, churches becoming too much aligned with political concerns. And I don't mean just party allegiances, because mm-hmm. Spurgeon... He was a, the, the two parties in England in those days were liberals and conservatives, Whigs and Tories. Spurgeon's very open that he's a liberal. He's mm-hmm. quite chummy with William Gladstone, the liberal prime minister. He tells people he thinks they should vote liberal. You know, so he, mm-hmm. okay, standing for a political party. But I just mean taking too much of an interest in politics, viewing politics as sort of like the primary mechanism by which we're to influence the world and change the world. And and again, if if, if, if you, Brandon, or you, Jordan, are to be a faithful Christian in Spurgeon's mind, he would say, stay local, go love your neighbor, go do yeah. good to people and mm-hmm. preach the gospel to them. And he, he wouldn't be as concerned that you campaign for a certain political cause, ordinarily speaking. I think he'd be happy if you campaigned for the disestablishment of the state church or something like that. <laughs> but, but generally, he's not looking for systemic reform through social and political means. Now, having said all of that, I think Spurgeon would be quite willing, even eager, to call out very clear forms of injustice mm-hmm. when he felt his voice could help in advocating for the needy and the disenfranchised. So the very famous example is slavery. Mm-hmm. Could have ignored it. He wasn't even American, you know, and but he he goes all in. This is a clear, if we can use the tired phrase, social justice issue in, in his day. And he calls it out. And he goes all in, you know, to the point of getting death threats over it, you know. And um, but a lesser known issue, for example, like he thinks, for example, pastors in 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 Britain are terribly underpaid and taken advantage of. He writes an article in the Sword and the Trowel, that's his monthly magazine, kind of like his blog or something, you know. He writes he writes an article uh, called The Pastor's Advocate. And he often brings this up. He ha- he fi- his wife has a ministry to send books for poor pastors, and he has an emergency fund for poor pastors. And he even, for the students at his pastor's college, he's providing out of his own pocket at times for their health care and for their books and for their clothes, even giving them sometimes pocket money and things like that. He just felt that pastors were, were, were in some ways abused by their congregations. And so he advocates for them. He says, brothers and sisters, this isn't right. This shouldn't be the way it is among us. And he speaks out against that. That was a, an issue where he thought that this is unjust, this isn't right. And so I think he would speak out to those things. And, and I will say this too, he would encourage pastors today, our churches should be known as centers for benevolent activity, mercy ministry. People, people should view our churches as, as bright lights in the community. Um, I, I heard once, um, uh, now this is interesting because we're talking about social justice, and I know John MacArthur's name is uh, one of those hot button names in social <laughs> debates. And, but but I heard at one point there was um, real estate agents in, in in that part of of California would list on the listings that this house is close to Grace Community Church, as that being a really positive thing. That church had such a good witness in the community. Well, Spurgeon would be like, "Yes, Amen. That's great." Like. That's what we want. And so for his church to be so well known for being a place of hope and healing for people, a refuge for people, uh, he would say that's, that's what the church should be. This is a place for, for good works and benevolence and mercy ministry. Educate the uneducated, minister to the poor, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, you know, help the disenfranchised. Our churches should be centers for that kind of work because ultimately that kind of work commends the gospel. And you understand, you can appreciate that's different from saying whether or not you should march in a particular protest or whether or not you should align with a pl- particular political party or mm-hmm. he's just going to move away, I think, from those kinds of discussions into more of what I'm talking about here, you know, staying yeah. local, promoting good works, being compassionate toward others. That's what he's about. So 
what do you think are the main influences for his thinking and activism? Did, were there were there any sections inside the Second London Confession that are shaping his understanding of activism, or or is this just external? Like maybe this is biblical texts. Yeah. You know. Well, and and it's at this point, I guess, that I would be turning my, my back on many of my Reformed Baptist friends that that I grew up around. I this is actually a bit of a controversial point that. Spurgeon is drawing on all these traditions. He's he's an evangelical, he's a Baptist, he's a dissenter, he's reformed, he's a Calvinist. And all those traditions, those streams inform his practice, his his preaching, his ecclesiology. But there 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 come points where those traditions are in competition with each other, or he's drawing on one more than the other, whether self-consciously or not. And so so for example, and here's here's the kind of controversial bit, I guess. Spurgeon is often referred to as, as something like the last of the Puritans or the heir of the Puritans. Many of his biographies even have that title. I personally think the Puritan influence on Spurgeon has been grandly overstated, hmm. uh, not only by his biographers and by scholars, but also by Spurgeon himself. So, so Spurgeon at many points is, is not walking in alignment with the Puritans, and he's not really drawing on, on that tradition and sometimes goes against that tradition in some points. Now, it's not like the Puritans weren't engaged in activism in some forms. Richard Baxter would be a really good example. But on the whole, they were not known for starting benevolent institutions and orphanages and sending out missionaries and all of that. That's a bit of a blight on their record. So I don't see Spurgeon drawing on his Puritan legacy when he's thinking about activism. He's influenced by his contemporary climate, which is big on individual initiative and philanthropic work and Volunteerism and things like that; those are just big Victorian virtues. Um, we think of like Florence Nightingale and Josephine Butler and Lord Shaftesbury and Thomas Barnardo, these great Victorian philanthropists. Spurgeon is influenced by them, and he's also influenced, I think, by the evangelical movement as something that personally I view in keeping with many historians, such as David Bebbington, as kind of a newer movement that emerges after the Puritan era. Think like 1730s, 1740s. Preachers like Whitfield and Wesley, you start to see more organization among the Christian bodies for things like benevolence and missions and associations and coordinating agencies for activism and things like that. And so I think it's coming out of that evangelical tradition. You know, Whitfield starts his orphanages. George Mueller is another you know famous example. Spurgeon visits George Mueller uh, mm-hmm. in Bristol. And is greatly impacted by what he sees there and inspired by what he sees there. So I think it's the evangelical leading lights. Oh, the, the Clapham Society, guys like William Wilberforce and, and the work that, that those men did and men and women did. Um, I, I think those are the influences that are, are driving Spurgeon and his his views of activism. This question is kind of a side note, but you know, you talked about how tirelessly he worked in these benevolence ministries and you know, there were 60 some you said he had so by 1884 there were 66 oh. and you mentioned that he was at all these meetings and everything and, and we know he died young um yeah. did, did you did you c- come across anything in your study about about how much sleep he got uh i mean i yeah. say that kind of jokingly but almost you know but seriously too you know how what was his average day like what did his average day look like did he get a normal amount of sleep? Do you sleep a couple hours and just get up and go? Or do you know? Yeah. yeah. So I actually wouldn't know the precise number of hours he slept at night. I'm guessing it's somewhere around six or seven. Um, but he, what, what Spurgeon does is, is so I'll, I'll move away from being descriptive to being more pastoral and prescriptive for a moment, that I don't view him as a model in this. I mean, he died young for a reason. Yeah. Spurgeon, yeah. Spurgeon filled every waking, almost every waking hour with work. Yeah. Uh, so, so he's, he's not a stranger to 14 to 16 hour days. That's, that's pretty normal for him. Now he takes a lot of holidays to France to recover. Mm -hmm. So his typical pattern was to, to work himself into serious sickness Mm. and then to go recoup for a month at Mentone in France. And that's where he, that's where he died, right? Yeah. He died at a a hospital at the hotel Beau Rivage there in, there in Mentone and uh, died of kidney failure. And, uh, he had gout, he had other, other problems and, um, in terrible health, most of his ministry. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of that is lack of sleep, overwork. The accounts of what he does in a typical day are just, are just exhausting to read. I mean, he's, he's editing sermons. He's preparing articles for the sword and the trial. He's preaching six to eight times per week. He's going to all these I mean, elders meetings, deacons meetings, 
uh, going to the, the meetings of these various associations. He's the president of the pastor's college, teaching lectures there every Friday. He's writing books. He's sending all something like 500 letters uh, uh, a week. Wow. Or may- maybe it was a day, actually. That's amazing. Yeah, don't quote me. It's 500 a week or 500 a day. It, <laughs> Either way, yeah. Yeah, it, it's exhausting. <laughs> I mean, and, and so, he, he did die young for a reason. Along along this topic, I know this is completely off to our main topic, but yeah. how is this marriage? <laughs> okay, what does so, that look like? So, so, so one of the things that's really endearing about Spurgeon is he had a wonderful marriage. Mm. Sadly, for, for so many of these these um, these bright lights in church history who are you know, they're famous to us now. They didn't have the best marriages. He had yeah. a wonderful marriage. His wife adored him mm. and he adored her and he was careful to preserve time with her. They had two sons, twin boys. Um, and, uh, uh, but he, he gave him, he was a devoted husband and he supported her, encouraged her in her work. She was an invalid, uh, uh, and for most of their marriage had to stay at home. And there's a book coming out, uh, oh, it's December or February, uh, there's a, a brother named Ray Rhodes, fellow Spurgeon scholar. He wrote a book uh, called Susie. So that's a biography of Spurgeon's wife, Susanna Spurgeon. Wonderful, excellent book. Pick that up if you don't have it. Ray Rhodes is a uh, uh, first-rate Spurgeon scholar and a wonderful book. He's just completed a book on on their marriage, uh, Charles that's, and Susanna's marriage. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's coming out. I, again, It's uh, I thought he said either just before or after Christmas. You, you can mm-hmm. find it on Amazon for pre-order. I think it's called, what is it? Yours Till Heaven, I think is the title. Yours Till Heaven, The Marriage of Charles and Susanna or something like that. Mm-hmm. But no, they had, they had a wonderful marriage. And mm-hmm. I'll just say, you know, that, that's one of the reasons Spurgeon has worn well, I think, in, in our day and age. In an age that sadly is taken up with cancel culture, Um I'm sure you guys have seen this. Um, you know, th- there's efforts to cancel guys like Jonathan Edwards and George yeah. Whitfield, yeah. and at, at least, and and yeah, I might be exposing myself here. Um, <laughs> you don't find a lot of skeletons in Spurgeon's closet. Yeah, and that that was surprising to me. That I thought I'd find out. Okay, he's. I'm sure he was a racist and a chauvinist and all, you know, yeah. all these things. He just and, smokes cigars. That was, that was yeah, it, that's right? that's the big thing. He smokes <laughs> cigars and he likes a glass of wine every now and again. But he doesn't have, he, he's not at much at risk for being canceled like some of those other figures. Um, the guy's just got a pretty clean rap sheet. Now, I know I'm asking now for everybody to at me on Twitter and tell me every <laughs> terrible thing they've ever heard about Spurgeon before. <laughs> Obviously, he's a sinner and, and he yeah. had his failings. I just yeah. said one of them is that he, 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 he was overworked and he encouraged guys to work a little too hard. But um, like in his marriage, for example, there's, there's not a lot of liability there. He's, mm-hmm. from everything we can tell, a pretty faithful husband. That's fascinating because it seems like pretty much every example that I've read in church history who had such an output as that had a terrible marriage. Well, listen, I've been reading Spurgeon um, almost every day for the last five years, and I'll just say I don't get it. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how how this guy was able to accomplish all that he accomplished. Um, If you're a Christian, you'll you'll, you'll say it's the work of God's spirit in him. He was just a a bright and shining light. but I can't provide very strong social and historical reasons to explain yeah. the output mm. of, of this man. Yeah. Of course, I, I guess I think of somebody like Edwards, and I don't think I've read a lot about him having a, a bad marriage. But, I mean, he he worked a ton, too, you yeah. know, going yeah. to his office for, what, 12, 14 hours a day? Yeah, right. I can't remember. Well, well and, and, and let me say on this point, I mean, there's 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 accounts you'll read. I, I, I heard Michael Haken share this. He was like doing the history of like a church in Canada. They'd asked him to do kind of a, a history of that church and kind of prepare it for them. And he discovered, I guess, in the minutes of that church, um, a letter from uh, Spurgeon to one of the fathers in this church. Apparently, Spurgeon was vacating somewhere in Scotland or something like that. And he happened in on a prayer meeting. And here was this guy from Canada who was also there. I might be butchering this, but the father, <laughs> the father at this prayer meeting stood up and said, would you please pray for my little boy? He's, he doesn't believe the Lord, doesn't know the Lord. And um, please pray for him. And Spurgeon prays for him in that prayer meeting. And then he writes a letter to this guy in Canada. And it's like, hey, how's your son? I've been praying for him. He actually, No, he actually writes a letter to the boy and, um, oh, wow. and, 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 and wants to commend Christ to him and try to win him to the Lord. And there's accounts of him, you know, uh, you'd have a, um, I, I think this really captures the heart of Spurgeon when we're talking about his activism. There was a temperance activist named John B. Go or John B. Guff, G-O-U-G-H. I don't know how to pronounce it. And he talks about going to visit the Stockwell Orphanage with Spurgeon. That's Spurgeon's orphanage. 
And he he had heard about the orphanage. He wanted to see it. Spurgeon's taking him on a tour there. And, and, and one of the teachers there at the orphanage comes to Spurgeon and says, look, one of the young boys is, is nigh unto death. He's, he's on his deathbed. He's got whatever um, uh, pneumonia or whatever. He says, he, he wants to see you, Mr. Spurgeon. Will you come see him? And so Spurgeon says to his friend, you know, John, I really have to do this. You're welcome to come with me, but I need to go see this boy. And so they go to the side of, of this dying orphan child. And, and John Goff just records how tender Spurgeon is with this little boy and how he mm-hmm. prayed with him and how he encouraged him from the word. And he has this great line, John Goff does. He says, he says um, I had seen uh, Spurgeon uh, hold 6,500 people at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in a breathless interest. I, I, had, I had seen him sway the mighty multitude with his preaching, but he was to me in that, in that moment with this dying orphan child, a greater and grander man mm-hmm. than I'd ever seen him when commanding, you know, the, the, the crowds or something like that. And um, the, the fact that this quote unquote celebrity pastor, this larger than life figure was in his heart of hearts, that kind of a man, that to me is extraordinary. And there's a lesson there, I think for us today, a guy who could have been bigger than an important, uh, an, an appointment like that. It could have, could have said, I got speaking engagements. I got things to write. I got politicians and dignitaries who want to meet with me. He, he, he valued that kind of ministry, mm. holding the hand of a dying child and praying over him. And that, that's, that's a kind of Spurgeon a lot of people don't know. They know the preacher, but the philanthropist, the generous, compassionate activist, the, 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 the caring individual, that, that's what, what I would like to shine more of a light on. Yeah. That really is a nice segue to what I was going to ask you about how you think Spurgeon would counsel local pastors today. And I, I guess that's, that's one of the answers is that you're never too big for those one-on-one, you know, ministry oh, yeah. moments. Um, is there anything else that you think um, he would, he would counsel any other specific way he would counsel local pastors um, today and, and how we can better minister to our people? Yeah. Well, I think, I think uh, Spurgeon is big on the Bible. He has confidence in the word of God and he would, he would encourage pastors to to preach the word and to believe that the word of God is sufficient to do the work of God. We have accounts of him writing to uh, uh, students of his in rural parishes and uh, small churches and just encourage him, preach the word, trust that the Lord is faithful to work through through the preaching of the word. Um, I think he would encourage pastors to, to be eager to be soul winners, uh, to be eager shepherds of souls, uh, you know, another just little anecdote, even as late as the 1880s, I, I told you, what, 14,000 people or so were added to the Metropolitan Tabernacle over his tenure. Uh, as far as I can tell, he held membership interviews with with most of them. Wow. So even in the 1880s, we have accounts of him. He has 40 membership interviews in one day. Again, he's he's given to that kind of work. He knows the names of the people in his flock, and he, he, he would he would urge pastors today to be shepherds of the flock, to care for the souls of their people. And um, I think if you're thinking about the downgrade controversy, that's sort of the end of his life. And he's very passionate to preserve certain things and to communicate certain ideals to his students and and other pastors. Um, You know, he wrote lectures to my students. That's a a more well-known book. He wrote another book called An All-Round Ministry, which is a series of basically pastor's conference addresses wonderful resource if you want to get his heart for pastors. An all-round ministry is the name of that book. I think that he would warn pastors today against worldliness. I think if if he could if he could see us today, he would be alarmed and astounded by the worldliness of, of evangelicals today. Um, he'd warn us against doctrinal downgrade. I think on the issue of social justice, he would warn us against getting distracted and warn us against uh, missional drift. But no, I think the main things would be, he'd say, preach the word, be about ministry in your local community, shepherd the flock, seek to be soul winners, seek to win people to Jesus Christ. And uh, those would be the big things. But I'll just say, you don't have to wonder what his thoughts would be. Um, th- those two books, Lectures to My Students and an All-Round Ministry, uh, I, I'm I'm a, a little disappointed those books aren't as, as well known as they ought to be. Um, I think it would be a great project for someone to take those books and sort of dust them off a little bit and try to maybe take selections from them and kind of re- represent them in a, a more slender volume. But um, yeah, he has a lot to say to pastors today. While we're on resources, um, so you've mentioned an all-around ministry, lectures to my students, and then uh, we've got the Ray Rhodes book, 
that mm-hmm. you mentioned that's coming out and also his book on uh, Susie Spurgeon. Is there anything else you want to highlight as far as um, things that you think we should read, whether they be primary Spurgeon resources or secondary resources that are more recent? Well, I, if, if anyone wants to know Spurgeon, uh, either just to understand him and who he was or just wants to benefit from him personally, uh, read his sermons. Most of them are online. Just buy any one volume of them and start reading through it. They read so well. I mean, it's yeah. so well. He's quoted all the time. I heard, was it Todd White quoting him the other day? So, oh, my goodness. I yeah. Mean, I mean, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. The eminently quotable Spurgeon. Praise God for that. But Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, so get his sermons. I mean, that's that's where you get the man. Um, a lot of people don't read The Sword and the Trowel because there's not a really good um, uh, copy of that available, but that's that's kind of a getting to kind of the 401 of Spurgeon. If, if the sermons are 101, that's more the 401. Uh, just a popular level biography. I normally recommend Arnold Dalimore's biography of Spurgeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so good. Yeah, really good biography, 250 pages or so. If you want to go deeper, uh, Peter Morden, who's written a lot on Andrew Fuller. He's also a Spurgeon scholar. Uh, he's written a book called Communion with Christ and His People. That's probably the best scholarly work that's out there on Spurgeon and um, in, 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 in print. Uh, Communion with Christ and His People, that's primarily a look at his spirituality, but covers all kinds of interesting biographical things and gets into all sorts of stuff. Um, that's a fantastic kind of scholarly work. Um, so yeah, those are some of the big things I'd say. Yeah. Thanks. Awesome. So two more things before we wrap up a little more personal, I guess for you, mm-hmm. number one, for those who are interested in following you and your work, mm-hmm. do you have places they can do that? Uh, social media, website, those types of things. And then second, do you have plans once you finish the dissertation to have that published at some point mm-hmm. somewhere? Because I, I imagine significant amount of our listeners are going to say, I want to get a copy of it and read it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'm a local church pastor. And so, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> you ask if you want to get to know me and my work. I mean, I have sermons online, emmanuelws.org. Uh, yeah, no, I'm a preacher primarily, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to do the PhD. I'd like to write on Spurgeon and write on other things as well. But um, a few articles online, if you search my name, that you could read. Um, but with respect to the dissertation, I mean, I need to defend it first, which is coming up in a couple months. And uh, afterward, uh, I would be uh, very happy to publish uh, two things. Uh, one would be if I could, if I could just. Uh, publish a dissertation more or less as is for, for scholars to use, that would be great. But I, I would I would much prefer also um, to publish something that is accessible for pastors, interested lay people. Um, and so I'm in conversations with a um, uh, uh, publisher right now about the possibility of doing that, awesome. writing on Spurgeon's social ministries and how he would encourage pastors and churches today. We'd be very glad to write on Spurgeon and um, give him, you know, a lot of attention. But yeah, trying to write, uh, working on an article for Nine Marks right now. I've written um, stuff there before, also for Spurgeon.org, some things for Southeastern that are in the works. And so, yeah, all that stuff's online if you just search my name and search Charles Spurgeon. So cool. that, may be the, that may be the only time Alex Dupreme and Charles Spurgeon ever put together, you know, <laughs> given a Google search. But other than that, you know. That's awesome. Brandon, do you have anything else you wanted to no, ask? No. I think this has been great. I it really enjoyed been, it. Yeah, it has. Uh, well, thanks I look, for having me, guys. I yeah. mean, I, 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 I've loved the podcast and um, listened to, to most episodes if I can. And so um, oh, it's a privilege it. to finally be on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. You know, we love having all types of different people on here. I think, as you know, we have pastors, we have academics, we have people who are like us who are more confessionally reformed type of stuff and people mm-hmm. who uh, are not even close to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a lot of fun to be able to, talk and learn and understand different things. So one, I I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. This is completely irrelevant. And I know you probably keep hearing thunder and my house is getting slammed. I don't have the perfect podcast environment. So I'm sorry if you hear it. You're fine. Go ahead. That said, knowing what you know about analytic theology, what do you think he might think about that? Because I can't imagine him doing that in any way. Um, though I don't know what his thoughts would be towards it. Okay, say more about that. What do you mean by analytic theology? Yeah, so analytic theology, I guess in some, is typically understood to be a mode of doing theology that I guess you could look at the scholastic method. Very close to the scholastic, yeah. Yeah, so that's going to be the type of doing. So you're doing 
uh, very, I don't know, logical type of analysis where yeah. you're setting Highly out here's my premise one, fanatic. premise two, those yeah, types sure. of things. Just very yeah. clear way of doing it in a way that's probably higher higher level shelf yeah. uh, than than normal. Yeah, I think I think something we're appreciating more and more about Spurgeon, though he was confessionally reformed, though out of nowhere in the 1850s, he republishes the 1689 confession, loves the Puritans, even though, like I said, I think the influence of the Puritans is overstated on Spurgeon. But um, he's a biblicist in a lot of ways. I mean, he, he is quite comfortable with tensions. He's quite comfortable mm-hmm. with apparent contradictions. He urges people stay with the flow of the text. Don't say more than the text will bear. Uh, don't extrapolate too much and develop opinions based on extrapolations. He, I view Spurgeon as a biblicist in his preaching and in his thinking. Now, he's capable. He's kind of an enlightenment guy in some ways, I guess. He's capable of being quite deductive and linear in his logic and insisting on on squeezing out contradictions and things like that. I mean, there's some evidences of that. But on the whole, I, I view him as more of a biblicist in his thinking. And again, he's, he's quite happy if, whether it's his Calvinism um, or his understanding of uh, the end times or whatever, he's quite comfortable with that presenting tensions in his thinking and, um, and, and leaving those tensions be. Mm. Oh. That's interesting. Well, I've had a ton of fun talking to you. I think our listeners probably have really enjoyed it as well. Um, for those who have been listening, I, I want to encourage you to, to go check out uh, Alex's work as it comes out, whether it's at nine marks or wherever it may be. And the book that hopefully one day will be available will definitely, whenever it is, uh, you know, as long as we're still doing the podcast, which I hope, I hope we so. are, uh, we'll, we'll definitely recommend it and remind all of our listeners that, Hey, this is here. You should go, go grab a copy. That's so kind that's of there. you guys. Um, for everybody who's been listening, you know, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we look forward to talking to you guys soon. <laughs>